First Kings chapter 20. In a sermon that was preached in 1855, the great preacher C. H. Spurgeon would say about God, he would say, it has been said by some that the proper study of mankind is man. He said, I will not oppose the idea, but I believe it is equally true that the proper study of God's elect is God. The proper study of the Christian is the Godhead. The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, the existence, and the existence of the great God whom he calls his Father. There's something exceedingly improving to the mind in the contemplation of the divine. He says it is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity. It's a subject so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. No subject of contemplation will tend more to humble the mind than the thoughts of God. But while the subject humbles, he goes on to say, the mind, it also expands it. He who or she who often thinks of God will have a larger mind than the man who simply plods around this narrow globe. The most excellent study for expanding the soul is the science of Christ and Him crucified and the knowledge of the Godhead and the glorious Trinity. Nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing so magnify the whole soul of man as a devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of divinity. Why? Why should we study about God? Why is it important to meditate on and spend time on God? It is because our behavior is determined by our belief. Uh, what we believe about God is how we are going to behave in this world. How we live, the decisions we make, the thoughts we think are all determined on the basis of what you and I think about God. Uh, we will live in line with what we think about God. A low view of God leads to a low view of God's word. A low view of God's word then leads to a weak understanding of who God is. A weak understanding of who God is leads to a shallow worship of God. A shallow worship of God is very ritualistic and self-centered rather than a deep and a reverent acknowledgement of who God is and of God's majesty and his glory. Uh, so what does it look like when our view of God is low or small? What happens when we think of God as small is what we have an example of in our text today, in 1 Kings chapter 20. So I've titled our lesson for today, When Your God is Small. When Your God is Small. Here's how I would summarize the text for us, and it's in your notes. Believers must be marked by a high view of God because a low view of God dishonors God and results in a fear of man. While a high view of God honors God and leads to the fear of God. Uh, we are to be marked, if you're a child of God, if you call yourself a follower of Christ, your view of God and my view of God is to be marked as one that is high, 
Uh, we don't have a small God. So let me ask you, are you a person who is marked by a high view of God? Uh, would that be your evaluation of yourself? Would that be others' evaluation of you, your family, your friends? Would they look at you and say, that person, they have a high view of God? Now this is our 14th lesson in this series on the divided kingdom. We're in the middle of the life of Ahab, the seventh king of Israel. And so far, there's not one king amongst the Israelite kings whose reign is described as God-honoring. All of them so far, the seven of them, are described as either bad or wicked. In fact, Ahab is introduced to us in chapter 16 as the worst of them all. It says in 1 Kings 16.30, Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. That's Ahab for us. Now, amongst all the kings of Israel, Ahab actually, as an Israelite king, is given the most space in the scriptures. Uh, his story begins in chapter 16 and it concludes in chapter 22. He's also one of those who has witnessed some of the spectacular manifestations of God's power and, and glory. I think of chapter 18 and the fire from heaven on Mount Carmel. And we'll see some more examples in today's lesson. Yet repeatedly we find him either downplaying the role of God or ignoring counsel from him or his people. All pointing to the fact that the God Ahab believed in is really a small God. Let me give you an overview of the text before we move forward. Just a quick outline of what the text is. Essentially, these 43 verses cover two wars. Uh, there are two wars mentioned in our text today. The first one is from verse 1 to verse 25. And the second one is covered from verse 26 to verse 34. And then from verse thir 35 to verse 43, till the end of the chapter, we have God's evaluation of Ahab's actions. Uh, God's evaluation of Ahab's actions. Uh, his report card, if you will. What can we say about the war? Well, the war follows a pretty much a similar pattern. And I have written it down for you so you don't have to spend time writing the same thing. But essentially, both those wars have a threat from the enemy towards the people of God. There's a threat expressed. Then there's a talk from the prophet of God. There's an, either a word of admonishment or a word of encouragement from the prophet of God. Then there's a thrashing of the enemy of, by God. Uh, that is, there is a victory that is displayed in both those wars. I'm just laying out everything out there, so there's no surprises for us. And then finally, there's a summary of the effect of the war. There's a summary of what happens. What are the things that God intends for Ahab and for us to learn from this? And after both those wars, we have a final evaluation of Ahab's actions from verse 35 to verse 30, 43. So let's turn to 1 Kings chapter 20. I'm going to read a couple of verses to begin with, and then what I'm going to do is walk us through them. Verse 1, Now Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, gathered all his army, and there were thirty-two kings with him, and horses and chariots. And he went up and besieged Samaria and fought against it. Uh, then he sent messengers to the city of Ahab, king of Israel, a city to Ahab, king of Israel, and said to him, Thus says Ben-Hadad, 
Your silver and your gold are mine. Your most beautiful wives and children are also mine. And the king of Israel replied, Is it any shock? It's according to your word, my lord, O king. I am yours and all that I have. Uh, then the messengers returned and said, Thus says Benadar, Truly I sent you, saying, You shall give me your silver and your gold and your wives and your children. But about this time tomorrow I will send my servants to you, and they will search your house and the houses of your servants, and whatever is desirable in your eyes, they will take in their hand and carry away. A few ways to look at the text is by a constant refrain. How is my view of God? Would, that, would be that refrain. How do I view God? And in, in that sense, you can start taking lessons from there on. But let's observe a few things in the text. There are a number of kings uh, with the name Ben-Hadad mentioned in the Bible. Uh, it's more of a title than a name. name. Ben means sun and Hadad means uh, god of the storm or thunder. Uh, we have come across one Ben-Hadad in chapter 15. You can think of him as Ben-Hadad the first and this is Ben-Hadad the second. Uh, we are told that he has 32 kings from the provinces that he rules over who are with him and his strength is mentioned in horses and chariots. We are told that Ben-Hadad led his army and surrounded Samaria the capital of Israel, and then he fought against it, verse 1. Verse 2 and 3 tell us that he sends messengers to Ahab. Uh, this is not a suggestion. It's not a request. It's a demand. And what is the demand? Your wealth and your wives and your children are all mine. Now, who talks to God's people like this? One who does not have any regard for God. Uh, that's the one who talks like this. One who has utter disregard for God of the Israelites. And so what does Ahab do? Notice verse 4. He, he, he meekly submits to this demand from Ben-Hadad. It's according to your word, O Lord. You want my wives and my children? They're yours. Now, considering that his wife was Jezebel, the wicked and evil woman, <laughs> uh, that is really not such a bad deal. <laughs> no? But as you think of it, when you, when you give an enemy an inch, what does he do? He takes a mile. He demands a mile. And so Ben-Hadad sends another message, verse 5, and this one goes beyond. I not only want you to give me your wealth and your family, I want my servants to come into your house and the house of your servants, and then whatever you like, I want them to take and they will carry it away. No longer is this a demand now. This is a sharing of their plans. He's not even demanding anything from Ahab. He's actually just revealing to him what he intends to do. You know, demanding something as a booty after a defeat in a war was, was common. But the second request is actually a deliberate insult, a dehumanizing of Ahab. And so, as you think of it, isn't this how sin works? Just like Ben-Hadad, uh, sin is never satisfied with just a little. Uh, that's how it begins, just an innocent glance. Uh, just a little time on something that is really not a big deal. Uh, and then pretty soon it begins to make demands on our life. It assumes that we are not slaves of Christ, but we are slaves of sin. And then very soon making demands is in the rear view. Now it just begins to make plans to be at home with you. That's how sin works. What are we to do? 
Oh, we have to be alert. There are adversary, the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lion. That's what Peter tells us. We have to be aware that he is seeking to devour us. But we have to submit to God and we have to resist the devil and we have to be firm in our faith. And the word tells us he will flee from us. Now what does Ahab do? Notice verse 7. He seeks counsel from his elders that are the elders of the land. Do you see how Benadad is looking for trouble? Verse 7. When he asked for my wives and my children and my wealth, I didn't say no. But now he's asking to plunder me completely. And what does what do the elders say? They respond, absolutely do not listen to him. Armed then with that confirmation, verse 9, Ahab now confidently responds to Benadad's messengers. Tell my lord the king, I'm happy to comply with his first request, but the second request that he has, he has crossed the limit. Uh, I cannot comply, he says. You know, as you look at verse 10, the king of Aram was an evil and a wicked man. He was a mean bully. And when bullies don't get what they want, they get mad, right? And that's what he does. Notice verse 10. Ben-Hadad says, note this down. Take it to the bank. My soldiers, he says, are so many and their victory is going to be so complete over you, Ahab, and so utterly devastating it will be that there's not going to be enough dust for them to return to my country after they defeat you. What pride and arrogance. Uh, that's the mark of one who does not fear God. That's Ben-Hadad. That brings us to verse 11. And now we have the most significant statement that Ahab makes. Uh, this is his best moment. In the six chapters that has been given to him, this is his best moment. Notice what he says. Let not him who girds the armor... that is, puts on the armor, let not him who girds on his armor boast like him who takes it off. It's like saying, Ben-Hadad, don't count your chickens before they hatch. Or someone who knows football well told me, don't act like you're giving a post-game interview when you've not even put your helmet or shoulder pads. Something well said. He's counting his chickens before they are hatched. And so that was the final nail in the coffin for Ben-Hadad as he commands his army, verse 12, to get ready for a fight with Israel. First of all, then, the threat from the Arameans. Secondly, the talk from the prophet of God, verse 13 and 14. You know, so far Ahab has actually heard from Ben-Hadad through his servants. He has heard a word from the elders of Israel. But as you think of this text, what is missing in all of this, back and forth, is any mention of God. What does God think of this? And so now we're told a prophet approaches Ahab, verse 13, and delivers to him the word of God. This is what the Lord says. Do you see all of this multitude? Do you see the vast number of soldiers? I'm going to deliver them into your hands. Why? Notice at the end of verse 13, so that you shall know that I am the Lord. The word itself is not enough, and so Ahab asks, notice verse 14, how is this going to happen? Who's going to do this? And this is what the Lord says. This is going to happen through young men of the rulers of the province. Uh, this is going to happen through some rookies who have never been in a war, and they're going to make sure that you win the war. And who's going to start the war here? Well, you are, Ahab. 
verse 14 at the end. And so what does Ahab do? He musters the young men. Uh, some lessons before we move on. You know, Ahab doesn't fail to surprise us, does he? He comes across as someone who is afraid to stand up to his evil and wicked wife Jezebel. We've seen that in the past, and we will see that again next week, Lord willing. He should be called, really, Mr. Jezebel, right? He's a leader without courage. Uh, someone who we have seen in chapter 18 limps between two positions. Uh, he's someone who consistently fails to learn the lessons God has been teaching him. Any Ahabs here? He has witnessed some of the most amazing proofs of who Yahweh is. You know, what can beat fire from heaven? Really nothing. And keeps, he keeps acting like the God of Israel is a small God. You see, no amount of proof is enough for the one who has already decided what his view of God is. First of all, Ahab then doesn't fail to surprise us as he sees God as a small God. But secondly, we see here a merciful God, don't we? And in spite of no pleading, no praying from Ahab's point of view, God sends his prophet to assure Ahab that he will fight for his people regardless of whether their leader approaches him or not. You know, God would be within his rights to let Ben-Hadad just plunder and humiliate Ahab. Uh, but God is also a merciful God. He withholds his judgment on Ahab and he allows him to continue to lead his people and he neutralizes Ben-Hadad's power so that his people will know that he is the Lord. But thirdly, although the Israelites will win victory, it will not come through Ahab, but through a bunch of young, inexperienced men who have no experience in war. Uh, wh why does God do such a thing? We saw that in chapter 18. But God is, is what, what he's doing is he's, he's stacking up the deck against himself. So that when victory ultimately comes, it will be very clear that it was the Lord behind it all. As you look at your own life, you see circumstances, experienced people perhaps who have disappointed you, circumstances that have let you down, for example, and you see the result that, that has come from that and you can know for sure that nothing could have made that happen except our great God. So God stacks the deck against himself so that when they win, they will know for sure that it was the Lord who was behind it all. That leads us thirdly to the thrashing of the enemy, verse 15. And he mustered the young men, it says, he gathered them. There were 232 of them. He has 7,000 soldiers. And at noon, verse 16, they go out and fight against Ben-Hadad and find that he's actually drinking in the daytime with his 32 other kings. Uh, Ben-Hadad's men see these young men and report back to Ben-Hadad and they say, we're seeing men, notice verse 17 at the end, men have come out from Samaria. What does Ben-Hadad do? He says, if they have come out for peace, take them alive. Or if they have come out for war, take them alive. Spoken like a true drunkard doesn't make any sense, right? Take them alive. He could have just said, take them alive. But he feels there's a need to repeat his statement. What do they do? Notice at the end of that section. 
verse 20. They killed each his man, and the Arameans fled, and Israel pursued them. They were utterly and completely destroyed. Ahab was really proven right. Let not him who girds on his armor boast like him who takes it off. But notice there's a problem. The end of verse 20. The problem was somehow Ben-Hadad managed to escape on a horse. How costly will that prove? Well, we'll just continue reading. Notice the summary of the war in verse 22 to verse 25. Uh, the thing that happened with Ben-Hadad's escape was really not good. Ahab and his army should have gone for the kill. And because they did not do that, notice verse 22. We have a prophet back to meet with Ahab. What does he say? Go strengthen yourself, get organized, and observe and see what you have to do. For at the turn of the year, the king of Aram will come up against you. He'll be back to fight against you. You should have gone for the kill, Ahab, but now he'll be back. Meanwhile, the servants of the king of Aram also have a talk with him. Notice verse 23. And here we see their view of their own God and their view of God of Israel. Notice what they say. Their gods are the gods of mountains, therefore they were stronger than we. But, re in, but rather let us fight against them in the plain, and surely we will be stronger than they. Uh, this view of God is called henotheism. Heno means one. Theism, of course, theos, God, is different from monotheism. Henotheism believes that there are these pockets of regions where a certain God is powerful. Monotheism doesn't believe that. Monotheism believes that God is powerful over all. And so this view is that gods have a certain control and sovereignty over only a certain area. Uh, this is a view that says God acts according to his specialty. And so that's why they are reasoning. They're saying we got defeated because their God is actually God of the mountains. And our God is the God of the plains. And so if we meet them in the plains, we have a better chance of defeating them. So here's what we suggest you do. Remove the kings from their positions and then instead put captains in their place. Let's regroup. Let's put together the same kind of army that we had before. Horse for horse, chariot for chariot. And then let's fight and you will see that we will win. Right? What are some lessons we can draw as we conclude this section? Now, similar to an earlier lesson we drew, we have to deal with sin decisively and permanently. Uh, we do that with the help of the Holy Spirit we are to be engaged as believers in putting to death the deeds of the body, says Paul. That is how we deal with sin in our life, with an intention to kill it. If we don't do that, it will consistently rear its ugly head again and again and again. Ahab should have gone for the kill, and now that he didn't, you have Ben-Hadad going to go come back to attack him. How do you deal with sin? Think about an area that the Lord has been growing you in. Uh, perhaps for some of us, it's anger. For others, perhaps it's selfishness. For some, it's pride, lust, jealousy, envy. How do we deal with sin? We have to have an intentional and a definite plan to deal with that particular sin. Plan to study that particular sin. Note the corresponding virtue of that sin. So for example, if it's anger that you're dealing with, a corresponding virtue of anger would be patience or kindness. 
go, go to the scriptures or go to a topical Bible that tells you where all that word has come up. And as you reflect and study that, God will equip you to deal with that particular sin. But there has to be an intention behind dealing with it. And this is not just going to happen with age. Last week I met someone who was 85 years old and he was telling me he's growing in the area of pride. You know, in other words, don't just assume that just because you're growing older, you're growing mature in the faith. You have to, and I have to, make an intentional effort to deal with the sin that the Lord is showing us in our life. Secondly, notice, when you have a small view of God, you have a high view of yourself. And what does a high view of yourself do? You don't feel the need to go to God for counsel. You don't think his word is important to you. You don't think it is important to consult him, to seek him in prayer. You think you've got it all. You don't need him. You know, for some of us whose prayer life is really weak, could it be that it is because we have a small view of God or a low view of God and a high view of ourselves that we don't feel the need to go to God in prayer? Those are some lessons that we can draw from it. Then there is, this is then the end of war number one. That brings us to war number two. And this one takes place at Afek, verse 26 to 34. Afek is in the north, and it's on the east side of what we now have as the Sea of Galilee. Here too, we have a similar pattern that follows as war number one. Notice, first of all, the threat from the Arameans, verse 26. At the turn of the year, Ben-Hadad mustered the Arameans and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. And just like the prophet has prophesied in verse 22, at the turn of the year, in verse 26, Ben-Hadad reorganized himself he regrouped himself. He put together the same kind of army he had before, horse for horse, chariot for chariot, and he was ready for a fight. Notice the fight is no longer in Samaria. It's in Afek, as we looked at before. Uh, that is in line with the view that the Arameans had put forward that Yahweh is only strong in the mountains because that's his specialty. He's not really strong in the plains, in the valleys. So that's where they plan on meeting the Israelites. What do the Israelites do? In their camp, they also regroup. Verse 27, it seemed though that compared to the Arameans, the Israelites looked like two little flocks of goat. While the Arameans filled the plain that was there at Afek, the Israelites didn't, Israelites didn't even cover a tiny spot on the plains. Now, you can just feel with the Israelites. They're probably already feeling a little smaller. A puny, they are probably feeling discouraged already. It's probably demoralizing to see an entire valley filled with your enemy, let's say in modern terminology, with tanks. And here you are with two groups of men with pistols in your hand. That's how they must have felt. It must have been an image that really took their heart out of them. They're probably already feeling defeated from the inside. Just a matter of time before they are defeated on the outside. And it's at this moment that the Lord sends his prophet to the king. Notice verse 28. Here he's referred to as the man of God. 
Then a man of God came near and spoke to the king of Israel. What did he say? Thus says the Lord, because the Arameans have said the Lord is a God of the mountains, but he's not a God of the valleys. Therefore, I will give all this great multitude into your hand. And notice a similar phrase repeated. Why? So that you shall know that I am the Lord. That I am the Lord. Ahab, I'm going to show the Arameans that they are dead wrong, that they they not only have a small view of who I am, but they also have a wrong view of who I am. They terribly underestimate me, and I'm going to show you that they are wrong by pulling an incredible win for you. From what looks like a human perspective, a certain defeat, I'm going to give you victory. I mean, look at their numbers and yours. You're going to be defeated if you fight in your own strength. Some quick lessons before we go to the next point. God's timing is always perfect. Uh, The prophet was there just when the Israelites needed him. You know, their spirits were low, and this word from the Lord must have been a real shot in the arm for them. Now think about your own life. Uh, Sometimes we see God's timing as perfectly right in the middle of difficult circumstances of our life. Sometimes we see it in the moment, sometimes we see it in the present, but many times we look back and we see God's timing has always been perfect. If if that is true in the past and the present, what stops him from doing the same thing in the future? God's timing is always perfect. Not only that, as you look at this and the prophet speaking and telling them, you're going to have a sure victory. You can't help but notice that this God, the God that we believe in, he knows the past, he knows our present, he knows our future, and he knows all the permutations and combinations of actions we would have taken and what the results of those actions would have been. That is the God you and I believe in. That is no small view of God, but Ahab continues to have a small view of God. God is telling Ahab here what is certain to happen in the future. From a human perspective, this looks impossible, Ahab, and it is. But with, with God, all things are possible. That leads to the thrashing of the enemy. Notice verse 29. The enemies then encamp against each other for seven days, and perhaps some threats are exchanged, some insults are traded. Uh, perhaps the Arameans are telling the Israelites, what they plan to do once they annihilate them, how they plan to hang their bodies and so forth. And that went on for seven days. But on the seventh day, the battle began. And the Israelites, who looked like two little flocks of goats, they killed 100,000 foot soldiers in one day. Verse 29. But there were also some who fled the battle. Notice verse 30. They went into into the city and a wall fell on them and 27,000 of them died. I don't know if you've heard of such kind of stories but all they let us conclude is if God was not involved in this there is no victory possible for these people. Right? 100,000 men, just two little flocks of goats, 27,000 escape and a wall falls on them. When was the last time a wall fell and so many people died? No, God is involved in this. God is no small God. But just like before, notice what happens at the end of verse 30. The Israelites let Ben-Hadad flee again. What does he do? He comes 
into the city, into an inner chamber. Ben-Hadad is still alive. Or some lessons, probably one. You know, here God is seen as one who is God of all that is seen and unseen. The God of the Bible, we learn, is not some localized deity. He's not just the God of, you know, South Lake or God of Dallas or God of Texas. No, he's the God of Rhode Island and Florida and Washington and California and all the states in the middle and, and all the continents that you can think of. No, he's not a localized deity. His sovereignty is on earth and his sovereignty is over the heavens. That is a high view of God. There's nothing seen or unseen over which his sovereignty does not exist. What are some things that follow as a summary of the effect of war? Notice verse 20, 31. There's no escape for Ben-Hadad. Uh, this is the end, uh, is what we would think. The servants approach, his servants approach him, verse 31, and tell him that they have heard that the kings of uh, Israel are merciful kings. They had heard correctly, but it didn't strike them that they're merciful because the God they believe in is a merciful God. And so what do they say? If you let us put sackcloth and ropes on us, and if you let us go to this king, perhaps he will save your life. You don't have to die. If we go to them, he will have mercy on you. And so Ben-Hadad says, okay, go ahead and do that. And so they come to Ahab, and they say, your servant, Ben-Hadad, says, please let me live, verse 32. As you think of this verse, and you think of verse 1 and to verse 12, what a great turnaround of events this is. Just a few months back, this was the same man who was making demands of Ahab. He was going to go into Ahab's kingdom, take his wives and his wealth and his children, and he was going to send his servants and they would plunder everything. That was the man Ben-Hadad. And now he's saying, Please let me live. I'm your servant, he says. How does Ahab respond? Notice at the end of verse 32. Oh, is he still alive? He's my brother. The men who were servants of Ben-Hadad, they latch on to that last statement from Ahab. Yes, yes, they say, your brother Ben-Hadad. All right, go ahead and bring him. Notice verse 32 and 33. Then he said, go, bring him. Then Ben-Hadad came out to him, and he took him up into the chariot. Not only does he spare his life, he gives him the honor and treats him as an equal. And Ben-Hadad, on his part, does not waste any time. He immediately strikes a deal. Notice he gives some gifts. Verse 34 the cities which my father took from your father, I'm going to restore that to you. The marketplaces or the streets which are named under, uh, which are named, uh, I'm going to let them also be yours. Notice verse 24. I will restore you and you shall make streets for yourself in Damascus as my father made in Samaria. What does Ahab do? Ahab says, I will let you go with this covenant. He signs a covenant. And so he made a covenant with him and let him go. Or some lessons we can draw quickly from this. Where a low view of God, you see, leads to an underestimation of his power and capacity. What led the defeat of the Arameans was that they 
overestimated the capacity of a non-existent being, namely their own gods, and they underestimated the power and authority and capacity of a God who does exist, namely the God of the Bible. You know, challenges of life seem more daunting, problems seem more bigger than they are when our view of God is small. As someone has said, when we see God for who he is, we see our problems for what they are. If we see God for who he is, we see our problems for what they are. Goes on to say, small God, big problems. Big God, small problems. A low view of God then leads to an underestimation of his power and his capacity. But a low view of God also leads to a humbling by God. And sometimes that humbling is immediate, and sometimes that humbling is in the future. The Arameans here were completely humiliated and humbled in the present. They not only had to eat their own words, they had to come to Ahab and accept their utter humiliation. Uh, this was a crushing a defeat. This was degrading. Uh, they were completely subdued. They were humbled in the present. But you know what? For those who are not humbled in the presence, the Bible tells us that we will be humbled one day in the future. In Philippians 2, verse 9 to 11, many of us have memorized that verse. For this reason also God highly exalted him, who is that him, the Lord Jesus Christ, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You humble your knee to him now or you will be forced to humble your knee at some point in the future. A low view of God then leads to a humbling by God but a low view of God also leads to an ignorance of the truth. You know Ben-Hadad's counselors told him that the God of Israelites is only the God of the mountains. He's not the God of the valleys or the plains. But once they were defeated in the plains, what should they have done? They should have accepted his sovereignty over plains and the mountains. But they don't do that, do they? They ignore the truth. When you have a low view of God, when you have a small God, you ignore what is really there. You ignore the truth and you begin to believe lies. That's what a low view of God, a small God does. How does God evaluate Ahab? In summary, that's what is God's evaluation of Ahab. Ahab, you have a small God. As you read those last few verses, uh, the story concludes really what, with what seems like a very surprising ending. A man shows up on the scene. I'm going to summarize it for us. A man shows up on the scene. He's considered one of the sons of prophets. Notice verse 35 which is to say a prophet, and he said to another man, perhaps a man that he interacted with, a narrator actually tells us, he tells us before that, that it is the word of the Lord that is telling me to tell, you, tell this to you. So here's a prophet. Our narrator is telling us he has a word from the Lord. And what does he tell another man? Notice what he says. Please strike me. This prophet tells this man, strike me, but the man refused to strike him. And because you have not listened to the voice of the Lord, verse 36, as soon as you depart from here, he says, a lion will kill you. 
And that, that's exactly what happens. He refuses to obey the prophet of God and a lion kills him. Then he finds another man, verse 37, and says the same thing to him. Please strike me. And I have a suspicion that this man saw what happened to the previous man. This man observed what happened to that first man who refused. So what does he do? He strikes him and wounds him. What's going on here? Well, the clue in what's going on here and where this is headed in the rest of the verses, it is this, and it's found in verse 36. You have not listened to the voice of the Lord. Listening to the word of God means not only hearing him and knowing him, but doing according to the word of God. You know, two times, verse 13 and verse 28, we are told, the text tells us before the enemy is defeated, that God is going to bring this victory about. Why? So that they would know that Yahweh is God, so that I am the Lord. Two times it's repeated. Now it isn't that the Israelites didn't know that the Lord is God. They did not know God in the sense that they did not act in line with that knowledge. When you act in line with knowledge you have, you will obey God's word. That's what it means to trust God. They knew who God was in the sense of an intellectual knowledge, but they didn't really trust God. And they didn't really obey Him. And so what we learn from this short episode is we want to obey God's word. This was word from God. Now with the wound now in place, verse 38, perhaps there's a profuse bleed. He's bleeding profusely, and so he puts a bandage over that and waits for the king, the king of Israel. Verse 38, and as the king passes by, he narrates a story about how in the middle of a battle, a man entrusted with another man to this individual told him to guard this man, and if for any reason he went missing, then his, he says it will be your life for his life, or you will need to pay a huge amount of silver. So he narrates this story, perhaps a fictitious story, of how a man was given a charge of another man, and he was told to guard that man. And while I was busy, he says, the man I was supposed to guard went missing. And without missing a beat, Ahab replies, you have really pronounced your judgment yourself. You have made a decision about your judgment yourself. And at that moment, the prophet removes, verse 41, his bandage, and the king recognize him, he recognizes him that he was one of the prophets. Notice verse 42. The prophet is now ready to deliver the message from the Lord. What is that message? Because you have let go out of your hand the man who was devoted to destruction. Therefore your life shall go for his life and your people for his people. As you hear that evaluation from God, you're immediately reminded of another confrontation, perhaps Nathan's confrontation with David. First, uh, Second Samuel chapter 12. David does the same thing, doesn't he? He decides his own judgment. You almost hear the same words here. Ahab, you are the man. You know, in the ancient Near East, the prison guard was responsible for the prisoner. If a prisoner escaped, the guard had to pay his own life for the life of the prisoner that escaped. And that was the same with Ahab. Ahab, you had been instructed to guard Ben-Hadad, right? He was to not only guard him, he was to destroy Ben-Hadad. 
Ben-Hadad was the prisoner and Ahab was the guard, but he allowed Ben-Hadad to escape and thus it was Ahab's life for Ben-Hadad's life. Ahab had spared a man that God intended for him to destroy. Notice Ahab's response, verse 43. He went to his house sullen. He was sulking. He was gloomy. And then he was vexed. And that is, he was frustrated. He was annoyed as he came to Samaria. Quickly, some lessons for us as we conclude. You cannot help but notice that throughout the 43 verses, the only individuals who have a high view of God, whose God is big, are really the prophets of God and the man of God. Everyone else has a God who is small. What do these prophets of God do? They faithfully deliver the word of God every single time. Notice thir verse 13, uh, verse 22, verse 28, verse 35, verse 43. They faithfully deliver the word of the Lord every single time. The individual who has best set up for success, the individual who should have also had a high view of God was really Ahab. But Ahab, through his behavior, reveals that his view of God was that he was small. He had a low view of who God is. He tried to limit God. He failed to recognize that God, the God of the Israelites, was a God of justice. He only understood God in a limited way as God who is a merciful God. And here is what his view of God led him to do. He extended mercy to Ben-Hadad, where God intended to administer justice towards him. What is Ahab trying to do? He's really trying to show himself more merciful than God. Now sometimes things don't go according to how we plan things and we are tempted to say, God, why would we do this? Why would you do this to them, Lord? What are we trying to do? <laughs> We're trying to show ourselves more merciful and compassionate than God is. And that's what Ahab is trying to show. He's more merciful than even God himself. Where God intended to administer justice, God intended for Ben-Hadad to die, Ahab actually spares his life. And not only that, secondly and finally, a small view of God does not lead you to repentance, but it leads you to be sullen and vexed, as we saw in verse 43. This was a moment of repentance and trust in the Lord, but instead of turning away from sin and turning to God, he turns away from God and turns towards his sin. Self-focused. That's what a small view of God does to us. Dale Ralph Davis says, The word of God had stirred him, but had not tamed him. However, this was not the failure of the word of God, but the failure of Ahab. Let me leave you with a quote from Phil Riken. I think it summarizes this very well. This is what he says. In the ending of this, if the ending of this story catches us by surprise, perhaps this is because we believe in a limited deity ourselves. But the true and living God is unlimited. He is a God of the valleys as well as the hills. What does this do? Uh, this gives hope to all his friends for all the impossibilities of life. Your view of God would determine how you look at the challenges of your life, how you look at the problems or the seeming issues of life. What does a high view of God do? It gives hope for all of us to face the impossibilities of life. It also strikes fear into the hearts of all his enemies. 
as the Arameans discovered and as Ahab learned to his own dismay, an unlimited God is not to be trifled with. But he is someone who is to be worshipped and obeyed. May we be known in Bereans, in Countryside Bible Church, as people who have a high view of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this lesson. Thank you for this story. We sometimes wonder why would so much space be given to a man who was so evil and wicked. It's because it's a warning to all of us. We are to stay away from such a view of who you are. Lord, remind us through your word uh, the fact that you are a God who is beyond what we can imagine you to be. A God of the impossibilities. A God who is not limited by our understanding of things, but a God who is unlimited. If you were a God who is limited, you're not really the God of the Bible. You're a God of our imagination. But you're not that. You're a God who is beyond our comprehension, and yet, Lord, we see in Christ you revealing yourself to us. Emmanuel, God with us. In, you, in Christ you made yourself visible, and we think of this month and we think of uh, the wonderful comfort and reminder it is to us that you became a helpless babe and you lived a life like any one of us yet without sin and you died for us and you rose again on the third day that is the Christ that we believe in we thank you for him pray for someone here who does not believe in you at all uh, perhaps they have a small view of you in certain areas of their life Lord, would you challenge us to have a high view of you, which is the accurate view of you. And may we live like that today and this week and through the rest of our life. We ask these things in Christ's precious and worthy name. Amen.